So Luke 2, verse 21 to 52. On the eighth day, when it, when it was time to circumcise a child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the, seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against. So that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a soul will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then had been a widow for 84 years. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. Now the child grew and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Every year, Jesus' Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival, according to the custom. After the festival's over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking that he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their, among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem looking for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And as Jesus grew up, he increased in wisdom and in favor with God and people. Uh, Well, if you've got a Bible in front of you, please do keep it open there to Luke 2. Uh, No worries if you don't, because I will have the key verses up on screen. But even better if you do, because it'll help you see those verses in context and make sure that what I'm saying is really what the Bible's saying. 
Well, we're now in our uh, fourth installment in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, and we've called it Luke again, partly because everyone just loves a good pun, uh, but partly because we think it's important for us to come back and look again more closely at the core of the Christian faith, the person and work of Jesus. Because there are lots of different ideas about Jesus out there. And so when you hear something or see something posted online about Jesus, or whatever it might be, when you, when you hear something or see something, how do you know if it's legit? You might hear something, but how do you know if it's accurately representing the real Jesus? Uh, right now, the, the shirt that I'm wearing is one of my favorites. Uh, it says, love thy neighbor at the top, uh, which is pretty uncontroversial. Jesus says the two greatest commands are love God and love your neighbor as yourself. So the shirt says, love thy neighbor, but then it gets specific. Uh, it says, love thy immigrant neighbor, love thy black neighbor. It goes on, love thy LGBTQIA neighbor, love your addicted neighbor, love your... All these things. It even says, love your millennial num- neighbor. So all you Gen Zs have to be nice to an old millennial like me, okay? The shirt says so. But I think that's great because it makes clear that Jesus calls us to love all people. He doesn't put boundaries on that. Rather, he encourages us to love all people. And Jesus teaches us that all people are equally sinners in need of grace. That all people are loved by God and should be loved by us too. So I like the shirt. But when people ask me where I got it from, which has happened a fair bit, I get a bit nervous. I tend to hesitate. Because I got it online, saw an advert on Facebook, but that was, it's from an organization called The Happy Givers. And the reason I get a bit nervous is that, sadly, I just can't endorse these guys and all they put out there. This shirt is great. Some of their other stuff, not so much. The organization is led by a dude named Carlos Rodriguez, who is pretty vocal on social media. Uh, here's a tweet he put up just last week. He says, Jesus wasn't nice. Yes, he was loving and inclusive, but in a way that gets you rejected by the religious. Yes, he was generous and truthful, but in the way that gets you persecuted by the powerful. Niceness was not his mission. Destroying oppressive systems was. Our turn. Now, there's a few things in there, but notice what he says about Jesus' mission, about Jesus' purpose, his goal, what he came to do. He says, niceness was not his mission. Destroying oppressive systems was. So you might see a tweet like that online for the you know, few people who are left on Twitter. But when you see something like that, it's worth asking, is that true? How do you know if that is legitimate or not? Is, is that accurately representing Jesus? And that's why we want to, for things like this, we want to look again and get to know the real Jesus for ourselves. As we saw in Luke chapter 1 a few weeks ago, Luke has carefully investigated and written his gospel based on first-hand eyewitness testimony. And he encourages us to look for ourselves and see what we learn even tonight about who Jesus is and what his mission was. This passage gives us a lot. And the first thing this passage shows us about Jesus is that he is the long-awaited Messiah. Have a look in your Bibles with me where we see this in Luke 2 from uh, verse 21. It says, On the eighth day when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it's written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. 
So when Jesus is eight days old, they circumcise him according to Jewish law in the Old Testament. And then when the time for purification rites required by the law of Moses, which according to Leviticus 12 is 33 days later, they take Jesus up to the temple. So at this point, Jesus is about six weeks old, still a small baby. They take him to the temple in Jerusalem, the capital city. And when we're there, we meet a guy named Simeon. And this guy's quite interesting. Have a look in your Bibles with me in verse 25, where we get introduced to him. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he'd seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him, the baby, in his arms and praised God. Now, this is pretty awesome, isn't it? Picture this six-week-old baby, uh, super small. Um, at, At this age, they just sit there like a potato and can't even do anything. Super passive. And yet here you have this little baby that can't even do anything except poop and eat. And God has revealed to Simeon that this little baby is the Lord's Messiah. Now you might be wondering, what does that word Messiah actually mean? Well, the word Messiah literally means anointed one. And it's a title that was used for God's promised king that would one day come and save his people. As I mentioned, uh, this Wednesday night we've got Hub Launch, and this semester we're looking at 1 Samuel. And it's a book in the Old Testament where we see a, a guy named David anointed, literally messiahed. He's messiahed, anointed as king over God's people in a small village called Bethlehem, which, as we saw last week, is the village that Jesus was born in. And as, we, as we're going to see over this semester in Hub, uh, 1 Samuel foreshadows Jesus in a lot of really cool ways. And that's significant because 1 Samuel takes place just over a thousand years before the birth of Jesus, which tells us that God's people had been waiting for God's Messiah for a long, long time. If you're with us at the start of the year, we did a sermon series in the book of Isaiah. And if 1 Samuel is about 1000 BC, Isaiah is about 700 BC. And we saw that he was giving prophecies uh, into the future and to God's people a few hundred years ahead who are living in exile in Babylon. But if you're with us at the start of the year, we also saw that those prophecies pointed way forward beyond the exile, pointing forward to the coming of Jesus 700 years later. And one of the many promises we saw in Isaiah that pointed forward to Jesus was in Isaiah 40 verse 1 where God said, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. God's people in Isaiah's day were being oppressed by the Babylonian Empire. And God's people in Simeon's day, a thousand years, uh, 700 years later, were being oppressed by the Roman Empire. And they'd been waiting for God to fulfill this promise to come and to comfort him, to rescue, to save them. And that exact same word of comfort, comfort, in Isaiah 40, is used in Luke 2 when it talks about the consolation of Israel, which you can see there in verse, in verse 25. Okay, so we've seen that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. 
Uh, but we've got to ask, what was Jesus' mission as Messiah? Because a lot of people might say, yep, Jesus, Messiah, all good. But what did he actually come to do? Well, this passage shows us three key things. And the first thing that Jesus came to do is to bring salvation. Have a look in your Bibles with me at Luke 2 from verse 28. Simeon took Jesus, the baby Jesus, in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you've promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. This is just awesome, isn't it? Simeon takes this this six-week-old baby in his arms and he looks at this baby and says, Lord, my eyes have seen your salvation. He's not seeing something big and majestic happening out here. He's looking at a small baby. And he says, my eyes have seen it, God. Jesus is salvation personified. It's what he came to do. Yes, to save God's people, Israel. They were waiting for the consolation of, of Israel. But also, notice what it says, which you've prepared in sight of all people, verse 31. Verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. That word Gentiles literally means the nations, to the whole world. That is Jesus' mission. Jesus came to bring salvation. And that's why the the tweet that we saw from before uh, gets things wrong. Destroying oppressive systems was not Jesus' mission. If it was, let's be real, Jesus did a pretty shocking job. That was his job. He was a pretty bad Messiah because the Roman Empire was the most oppressive system you could imagine. We saw last week they were oppressively taxing and impoverishing people. And yet even after Jesus' death and all that he did in his life, the Roman Empire was still kicking. The Roman Emperor wouldn't have even known that Jesus had been born. He was so insignificant. And the Roman Empire would still keep going on oppressing people for centuries after Jesus. If Jesus came to destroy oppressive systems, Jesus failed. But no, that wasn't his mission. Luke 2 tells us that Jesus is salvation personified. He came to save. And this is only confirmed when we look at explicit statements from the lips of Jesus himself about why he came. In Luke 19, Jesus meets Zacchaeus, the short dude, and at the end of the interaction, Jesus says, Today, salvation has come to this house, because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to destroy oppressive systems. That's not what it says, is it? Jesus would be like, hey, did I stutter? I'm pretty loud and clear. The Son of Man came to do what? To seek and save the lost. That's why he came, to bring salvation. Now, you might say, okay, then, well, does it really matter whether or not Jesus came to destroy oppressive systems or bring salvation? I mean, what's the big deal? Well, it's a massive deal because to misunderstand Jesus' mission is to completely miss who he is and what he's on about. And it's also to miss what our lives should be on about. Because Jesus' life mission should shape our life mission. Notice in the tweet, after the false statement about Jesus' mission, it ends with, our turn. That is, even though he gets Jesus' mission wrong, he rightly recognizes that Jesus' life mission should shape our life mission. 
Jesus is so important that whatever mission and goal and purpose Jesus gave himself for, that should be the mission and goal and purpose that we give ourselves for. Which makes it all the more important that we don't get his mission wrong. Because it, it can and should affect the whole course of our lives. Jesus came to bring salvation to the nations, to all peoples of the earth. And that should be our life mission too. Both for us as individuals, but also for us collectively together as God's people. We want more people to know Jesus and the life that comes through him. I loved one of the responses to the original tweet. Uh, One person responded simply by saying, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore destroy oppressive systems. Lol. Because, of course, when Jesus rose from the dead in Matthew 28, he didn't tell people to do that. On the contrary, he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and do what? Make disciples of of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. If Jesus' mission was to bring salvation, then what is your life mission? What is mine? If Jesus' mission was to bring salvation then our life mission should be to point other people to him so that they can find and experience that salvation. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah who came to bring salvation. But it's worth asking, how exactly does Jesus do that? How does Jesus bring salvation? Well, when you ask that question, a lot of people's minds might go straight to the cross. You know, Jesus saved us by dying on the cross for us, and in many ways that's understandable, but it's only part of the picture. Because yes, Jesus died for us, but his death is only significant because of how he lived for us. And in particular, because in his life, he fulfilled the law. That's the second thing we see in this passage that Jesus came to do. Jesus came to fulfill the law. And this is a point that actually comes up again and again and again and again in our passage. I mean, I don't know if you noticed, but Luke 2.21, it says, On the eighth day, uh, Jesus is circumcised, which is precise obedience to the, the exact day, according to Genesis 17 in the Old Testament law. Verse 22, they fulfill the purification rites according, uh, required by the law of Moses uh, in Levit- Leviticus 12. Luke 2.23, the very next verse, again it says, As it is written... In the law of the Lord, which is in obedience to Exodus 13 and Numbers 18, verse 24, again, he specifies the kind of offering they make, which according to Leviticus 12, is the offering for those who are too poor to afford to sacrifice a lamb. So it's an interesting side note that shows us something about Mary and Joseph. They were too poor even to be able to afford a lamb to sacrifice for Jesus. But notice... Again and again and again, it's emphasizing that Jesus' parents fully obeyed the law when it came to their little baby. Which means that even before Jesus could say, Abba or Ima, Mum or Dad, he's already perfectly fulfilling the law. And it just keeps getting emphasized. If you look in your Bibles, you'll notice it in verse 27, you'll see it in verse 39, you'll see it in verse 44. They do everything for Jesus in accordance with the law of Moses. And it's so cool, in, in verses 41 to 52, we get an account of Jesus when he's 12 years old. 
And I wish we had more time to unpack this part of the passage in detail. It's so good. Uh, Jesus and his parents go up uh, to the temple for Passover. And you, you know that sinking feeling you get when you lose your phone or your wallet? Well, imagine how Mary and Joseph felt. They didn't lose their phone. They literally lost the Messiah. Like, come on, people have been waiting for centuries for Jesus to turn up, and now you've misplaced him. Like, where's the guy that's going to save the world? Come on, guys, you had one job. So Mary and Joseph were very devout when it came to observance of the law, but clearly they weren't perfect parents, weren't they? If nowadays our danger is helicopter parenting, back then it was the opposite. But that's just the thing. Jesus' parents weren't perfect, but Jesus was Have a look in your Bibles with me at Luke 2 from verse 48. Have a look. It says, they've been searching, they've been searching. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. They see him in the temple. His mother has said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why are you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house in the temple? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Now here we see this amazing scene that that even from a young age, Jesus knows that he has this unique relationship to the Father, this unique relationship to God. The the temple in Jerusalem, he's like, yeah, that's my dad's house. No big deal, humble brag. And his parents can't get their heads around it. They're confused, they can't understand it. But Jesus does what? What? Does he dismiss them? Does he ridicule them? Does he say, I'm clearly bigger than you guys. You know, I've got God as my dad, so I don't need to listen to you. No, what does he do? He was obedient to them. He was literally that. He was submissive to them. Obeying the fifth commandment. Honor thy father and thy mother. Even from the youngest age, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. And once again, don't worry about what some guy on Twitter says. Don't worry about what I say Jesus' mission was even. Let's once again let Jesus himself tell us what his mission was. Just like we saw in Luke 19, let's look in Matthew 5, 17. Jesus says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to what? To fulfill them. Jesus says he hasn't come to abolish God's law, uh, to do away with it and say it's completely irrelevant and useless. But he also doesn't say he's come to leave it as it is, still binding on God's people. No, he says he's come to fulfill it. The law with its sacrifices, with its laws about Sabbath and certain foods they could and couldn't eat, and with its laws about being circumcised on the eighth day, Jesus came to fulfill the law, to perfectly keep it, and to bring it to its intended completion so that it's no longer binding on God's people. It's not a matter of, you know, Jesus came to fulfill the law, our turn. Like, Jesus fulfilled it, now we have to as well. No, Jesus fulfilled the law because we can't. He lived the life we couldn't. And this is where some Christians run into danger because they're well-intentioned and they want to honour God, so they say, well, let's honour God by obeying the Old Testament law, which, which is understandable because it's in the Bible. Let's keep the Sabbath and the food laws. It's well-intentioned. But it misses the fact that Jesus came to fulfill the law so that it's no longer binding on God's people. In Galatians 3, 24 to 25, it says, The law was put in charge to lead us to Christ 
That's its purpose. So that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. What was the purpose of the law? To lead us to Christ. And it's now fulfilled that purpose. And because Jesus has perfectly kept every command, we are no longer under the supervision of the law. Which is good news because none of us ever could keep the law. You know, in, in, there are many commandments in the Old Testament law, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. But in Matthew 22, Jesus is asked, which law is the most important? And Jesus responds, quoting from, first from Deuteronomy 6, uh, he says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it from Leviticus 19, 18. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, Jesus says, hang on these two commandments. Now, Jesus saying is, yes, the law is big and long and there are hundreds and it's complicated, but it's also actually kind of pretty simple. He says, when you boil it down, the law is all about love. Love on the vertical plane, love the Lord your God. In relationship to him, putting him first and being radically committed to him in all that we do. And love on the horizontal plane, love other people and putting themselves before us. It's very simple when you boil it down. Very simple. And yet if you've ever tried it for more than 30 seconds, it is so very hard. If we're honest, we all fail to live this way. Perfectly putting God first before ourselves and others before ourselves. I certainly fail at that, not just like occasionally, but all the time. Not just in my actions, but in my motivations. We fail to love God for our hearts. We fail to love others we should. And therefore, we deserve God's condemnation. But the good news is that Jesus came to fulfill the law where all of us fail. Jesus perfectly kept the law to live the life we couldn't. And that is how Jesus brings salvation. Yes, through his death on the cross, but Jesus didn't just die for us. He lived for us. He lives the life that we couldn't, then dies the death that we should have. And when we trust in him, not only does he take our sin on himself, but he also takes his righteousness, his perfect law-keeping life of love. And God puts that on us. And clothes us with Christ. And that's how Jesus saves us. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah who came to bring salvation, to fulfill the law, and finally, to expose hearts. Have a look in your Bibles with me at Luke chapter 2, verses 33 to 35. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about Jesus. And then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, opposed, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, exposed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too, Mary. Simeon says that sadly... Although Jesus brings this great salvation and fulfills the law, sadly, not everyone is going to accept Jesus. Some will reject him and fall. Others will accept him and rise. 
And when he says that a sword will pierce Mary's heart, I mean, just think about it. Imagine knowing that your own little baby is going to grow up and face rejection and face opposition. It'd be heartbreaking for her, and no doubt it was. But what these verses are showing us is that through Jesus being opposed, he is going to reveal the heart condition of many. Through the way people would respond to Jesus, the real condition of their hearts would be exposed. Many in Jesus' life who were outwardly religious, like the Pharisees, they were very religious and proud and good at keeping the law, they thought. And yet, when Jesus came, they rejected him. They rejected God's salvation. And yet, on the other hand, many who were low and outcast, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners, when they saw Jesus come, they accepted Jesus and were saved. There was a great exposure, a great division, a great reversal even in Jesus' life. Jesus had that effect on people back then, and Jesus still has that effect on people today. He exposes people's hearts as they either reject him or accept him. I wonder if you've ever left a candle out in the sun. I did once, not thinking anything of it, but returned later to find that it had melted and gone all wonky. Apparently, if you leave wax in the sun, it'll melt. Who would have known? But if you leave clay out in the sun, it'll have the opposite effect. You know, we've done crafts with our kids where you make little models with soft clay. It's really soft and malleable. Then you put it out in the sun, leave it for a few hours, and it goes hard. It goes rock solid. It's fascinating, right? The same sun will melt wax, but harden clay. And Jesus has that same effect on people. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, the same sun which melts wax hardens clay, and the same gospel which melts some persons to repentance hardens others in their sins. Why does the gospel of Jesus have that effect on people? Well, if you think about it, the gospel is confronting. It tells us that we are more sinful and flawed than we could ever dare believe. Yet at the same time, by trusting in Jesus, we can be more loved and accepted than we could ever dare hope. The gospel is confronting. It's confronting to the proud, to the person who doesn't want to be told they're sinful, to the person who wants to believe that they are fundamentally good, that if they just look inside their hearts and be true to themselves, that good things will come out, they can be good enough To that person, the gospel is very confronting. And that is why the highly religious Pharisees rejected Jesus back then. And it's why many highly secular people reject Jesus now. Because they want to continue to believe, despite the prevailing evidence, that deep down they are fundamentally good people. But the reality is, if you're anything like me, we're not fundamentally deep down wonderful good people. And so although the gospel is confronting to the proud and confronting to those who want to think highly of themselves, the gospel is a sweet tonic to the broken, to the poor in spirit, to those who feel unworthy or unlovable. 
And so if you're here tonight and you feel unworthy, you feel ashamed, you feel the weight of your sin, you feel like you don't match up, then let me assure you that you are exactly the kind of person Jesus came for. If you feel unworthy, let me tell you the good news. You're not. You're not worthy. And God loves you anyway because of what he's done for you in the Lord Jesus. That is beautiful good news that is far better than, you know, just trying to be naively optimistic and say you're wonderful, you're worthy, you're worth it. It Sounds good, but deep down we know it's not actually true. The message of the gospel is far better news. Which means that even when you're feeling most unworthy, when you're feeling most shameful, when you're feeling most unloved, even in that moment, Jesus is reaching out to you in love and welcomes you in. So whether you are feeling right now, whether you're feeling low or whether you're feeling high, whether you're feeling dirty or whether you're feeling very self-assured, come to Jesus and keep coming to him. Whether you're someone who's not currently trusting in Jesus or even if you are someone who, who already is, come to Jesus, rely on him, lean on him, trust in him. If you're here tonight and you're offended by Jesus, Take a moment to reflect on your heart. Perhaps even as I've been talking tonight, you've been feeling this resistance, this unwillingness to take Jesus seriously. If that's you tonight, please be careful. In Luke 2, God is giving you a warning as well as an invitation to not be one of those whose heart is exposed in the face of Jesus and who falls. If you feel resistance in your heart against him, then come to God, ask him to soften your heart, and he will be all too willing to answer that prayer. Come to him, allow Jesus to not only expose your heart, but but also to heal it and to soften it with the warm sun of his gospel grace. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah who came to bring salvation to fulfill the law, and to expose hearts. Let's pray together for God's help in responding to Jesus as we see him in his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have given us in the person of Jesus and how this portrait, even from his youngest years, gives us insight into why he came, what his mission was. Father, as we look at your plan unfolding over hundreds and hundreds of years to bring salvation to the ends of the earth, we praise you for your wisdom and your sovereignty and your love. Father, help us to respond rightly to Jesus. For those of us here tonight who can feel that their heart is hard and resistant, Father, please soften their hearts to see Jesus for who he really is and to love him. Father, for those of us here tonight who feel the weight of their unworthiness, help them to know the depth of your love for them in Christ. And finally, Father, we ask that you would use each one of us for your purposes. We pray that our life mission would be shaped by Jesus' life mission. And that just as he came to save us, we pray that you would use us to point others towards him. 
Father, please uh, help Jesus to so fix our gaze and our minds and our attention and our affections that we would long for nothing more than for others to know him. Father, help that to be at the center of our priorities and for us to build our, our week and our time and where we spend our money and where we do everything, all built around knowing Jesus and helping others to know the salvation that comes through him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.